Good evening, everyone. If you've got a Bible, it would be really good if you could have that open. Romans chapter 14. Uh, That's on page 1140. Page 1140. And I think it'll be helpful for you and for me if you have a a Bible open. We're going to be looking at quite a large chunk of uh, Romans. Uh, And therefore, I suppose we are limited in some way. We're going to have to uh, skip over certain things and uh, take a broader approach to it. We're going to go from verse 1 of 14 uh, right through to 13 of uh, 15. Throughout the the book of Romans, uh, Paul has used a phrase, uh, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've noticed it, 17 times. That's quite a lot of times. And the reason he's done it is because he wants us to understand something. Uh, He wants us to understand that the mercy of God that is expressed in the gospel brings into existence something very special. Uh, Not an institution, the mercy of God brings into existence a family. The danger though in churches sometimes is that we become less like a family and more like a herd. So you know how herds work. Don't you think of a herd of cows? They all look the same. They all sound the same. They all eat the same kind of thing. In a herd, individual expression is not valued. Uh, So one day, uh, a goat comes along to a herd of cows and uh, is rejected by the herd of cows because the cows say, you're not like us. You don't look like us. You don't sound like us. You don't eat and act like us. You're not one of us. And, you know, even as human beings, we still experience that power of the herd mentality. Uh, Deep down in all of us, we have this desire to conform to those people who are around us. We want to belong But on the other hand, uh, deep down inside us, we also want to express our individuality, our God-given individuality. And this tension between wanting to belong on the one hand, but also wanting to express our individuality is a kind of struggle that we all live with every single day of our lives. We all want to belong, but we also want to stand out. In contrast to a herd, a family is very different, isn't it? Uh, Families are better than herds. I know that many of us, and some of us tonight sitting here, may have had very difficult experiences of family life, but family, when it functions as it should, is the place where both of those desires, the desire to belong and the desire to be yourself, where both of them can be fully met and fully expressed. The desire to belong and be part of something and the desire to be yourself, both of those things happen within a healthy family. And as Paul writes this uh, section of Romans, uh, what he's saying to the church in Rome is quite simple. He's saying this, you are a family. You're a family and therefore you're to express your individuality and all of your diversity, but you're to do it together because you're a family. Recently in our morning services, we've been thinking, haven't we, about the church as a family. But the danger is that we slip into becoming more like a herd, where in order to belong, you need to conform to our way of doing things. And so Paul takes this chapter in his letter to help us think through the question, what do we do when we're different from one another and when we disagree with one another? How do we avoid becoming like a herd? And how do we express the beauty of becoming a family? That's what Paul wants to talk about this evening. And yet all of us know that that's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? And so we need God's help. So before we look at this chapter, both chapters, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us 
as we open his word. Father, we thank you for the chance we have now to look at your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, not only that you would feed our minds, but that you would feed our hearts, and that you would enable us to apply all that you have to say to us in this portion of your word in our lives. And we pray your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Too often, whenever Christians disagree with each other, uh, they take the easy route and they end up in a different church where they find people who agree with them on basically uh, everything. And yet God says that's not the way uh, to do things in the church. Uh, In the church in Rome, uh, there were people who had these deeply held convictions on what Paul calls, verse 1, disputable matters. And Paul's appeal to them is to relate to one another in love as a family. Uh, From chapter 12 of Romans right through to the end of the letter, uh, the focus turns more from uh, what the gospel is to how we're to live in light of the gospel, in worshipful obedience to Jesus. And a theme that runs right from chapter 12 through to the end is the theme of love. So chapter 12, verse 9, you're to love your fellow Christians. Paul says, let love be genuine. Chapter 12, verse 14, uh, you're to love your enemies. He says, bless or love those who persecute you. And then last time in Romans, chapter 13, verse 8, you're to love your neighbor as you live in society. Paul says, the one who loves fulfills the law. And here in chapter 14, Paul spells out what it means to love your brother and sister in Christ when you're different and when you disagree with him or her on what Paul calls a disputable matter. So the question is, uh, what were these disputable matters that Paul had in mind? Uh, The disagreement that was happening in, in Rome basically had to do with two things. The first thing was diet and the second thing was days. So diet, verse 2 and 3. Paul writes, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. It seems like there were some Jewish believers in Rome who were continuing to follow the Jewish ceremonial dietary laws. Uh, Whereas there were Gentiles who had been converted who weren't doing this. Uh, Back in the Old Testament, Israel was regulated by rules uh, and regulations called ceremonial law. Uh, A lot of it had to do with diet. And if you broke the ceremonial law, you were declared ceremonially unclean, so you couldn't worship. Uh, There were a couple of reasons for these laws. One reason was that Israel would be distinct as a nation from those around them. But a second and important reason for these ceremonial laws was it was to teach God's people that you cannot simply enter the presence of God, that purification has to be made in order for us to enter into God's presence. However, in verse 14 of our passage, Paul is very clear when he says, in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean. In other words, when you trust in Jesus and you belong to him, you are viewed by God as clean. Yes, you have to be clean and acceptable to approach a holy God, but the gospel says that Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law on our behalf. That's the gospel. It's not down to you to clean yourself up. The gospel says that in Christ, you are made clean. And yet there must have been a group in Rome Uh, from a Jewish background who didn't quite understand the implications 
of the gospel. And that's why in verse 1, Paul refers to them as weak in faith. They had issues around diet. But that wasn't the only issue. Uh, It seems at verse 5 that they also had some concerns around days. Look at what he writes, verse 5. He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Uh, These were Jewish believers who had been brought up in the Jewish tradition. They observed the Sabbath. They observed all these different Jewish festivals. And they still felt in their conscience like they were duty-bound to obey the rules and regulations, even though they didn't apply to them because of Jesus. And yet they still felt in their conscience that they should live in this Jewish way. It wasn't that they were being legalistic. It wasn't saying, they weren't saying, you know, you have to do this to be a Christian. They were just doing it out of a deep desire to love the Lord. It's a bit like someone, if you imagine it today, who struggled with an alcohol addiction and who comes to faith in Jesus and they say, you know, I'm never going to touch alcohol again. I'm never even going to go into a pub again. That comes from an attitude of wanting to please Jesus. It's not a rule that every Christian is bound to follow, but it comes from a heart of wanting to honor the Lord. At first glance, whenever we read chapter 14, it can feel a little bit remote uh, with all this talk of diet and days. But actually, the implications for us as a church today are really profound. How do we relate to one another when we're different, when we're from different backgrounds? And how do we love each other whenever we disagree on matters of opinion, on disputable matters. Uh, In Rome, there were those who asserted their gospel freedom. They said, we are free in Christ. We don't have to do this. They're called strong. And there are those who still felt funny about it. And they're called the weak. And one danger is that the strong look down on the weak in contempt, verse 3. And they accuse them of being rigid. The other danger is that the weak judge the strong and accuse them of being flippant, not taking the faith seriously. And so Paul issues a command, and the key to his argument is not that we should all agree with one another. It's not that we should conform and become the same, like a herd. Rather, his argument, first one, is that we should accept one another. He says, first one, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And then again, chapter 15, verse 7, if you have a look, he says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise uh, to God. If you're taking headings tonight, this is our first heading. Paul says, accept one another because God has accepted you and because we answer to God alone. That's verses 1 to 12. Accept one another because God has accepted you and because we answer to God alone. That's the central thrust of the passage. According to the Apostle Paul, accepting one another will produce a more profound unity than agreeing with one another ever could. Agreeing with one another simply creates a herd, whereas accepting one another creates a family. Sometimes we use the word accept in a bit of a negative way, don't we? You know, you say to a child or whatever it is, you know, you just got to accept it. You just got to put up with it. You just got to tolerate it. It's not a very nice word. And yet, whenever Paul uses that little word in verse one, accept, it carries with it a deeper meaning. It has the sense of receiving someone. 
or making room for another person. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, uh, he says this. He says that accepting one another means welcoming someone into your fellowship and into your heart. That's a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? There it is. That's what it means to accept one another. It's to welcome someone into your life, to make room for them and to have them on your heart despite all their differences. Paul's command, I don't know about you, but I think that Paul's command is very radical. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. You can read that and you can think, Paul, are you serious? Are you seriously saying that we're to welcome someone who's weak in faith rather than interrogate them as to the details of all their theological positions? You've obviously never been to any church that I've been to. Surely Paul knows that if we're to have any fellowship with someone, we have to first of all have determined their position on Bible translations, shopping on a Sunday, preferred style of worship, if they're politically left or right. Only whenever we get those important issues out of the way can we have any Christian fellowship, surely. And yet Paul seems to think that actually we should leave those disputable matters to the side for the time being, and instead we should welcome, we should accept every believer, no matter how weak we think their faith is. Maybe we read these verses and we we think, you know, that's a nice idea. But it's just too hard to escape a herd mentality. It's just how people uh, live. And that's why Paul not only tells us what to do, he says, accept one another, but he also tells us how we can get the power to do it. Uh, His command that he gives here of accepting one another, it's kind of undergirded by two glorious truths, two truths that will motivate us to accept one another with all our differences. The first is that God has accepted us. And the second is that we answer to God alone. So first, he says, chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Our motivation to accept one another is founded upon the reality of God's acceptance of us. In other words, If God has not made a particular issue a barrier to fellowship with him, then we must not create more rigid standards than God and make it be a barrier to our fellowship with other people. Do you know, it is possible for Christians to be less welcoming than God is. It is possible for Christians to set a higher bar than God does. It is possible that Christians are more suspicious of other people's motives than God is. And yet, Paul says God accepts us in the gospel freely and fully. And therefore, we're to accept one another. Friends, just think about it for a moment. Think about the kind of acceptance that you have received from the Lord. Think about the quality of welcome that Jesus has given you personally. Uh, Jesus died on the cross, and he died on the cross as a result of all the times where you have got it wrong. He went to the cross and he said, look at what I've done to make room for you, to make it possible for you to be accepted. What did he do to make room for you? Did he sacrifice anything? He literally bore the feelings of the weak. He bore the feelings of you and I. And if he would do that for you and for me, then how could we possibly look at someone around us and say, I won't accept your shortcomings. I won't accept your failures and weaknesses because it's too personally costly to me. Paul says we're to accept one another 
And we're to bear the feelings of the week, verse 1 of chapter 15, because that is precisely what Jesus in the gospel has done for us. Our obedience to the command comes from knowing deep down that we have been accepted, that Jesus has borne our failures. The gospel has a shape to it. The gospel is vertical, but the gospel is also horizontal. It has vertical implications and it has horizontal implications. So the gospel not only brings together people and God vertically, but also people with people horizontally. As you and I receive the acceptance and the love of God, as we receive it vertically, so it is to flow out of us horizontally to other people. It's true, isn't it, that people who have experienced the forgiveness of God are able to forgive. People who have experienced the love of God are able to love. And people who have deeply experienced the acceptance of God are the kind of people who can accept other people. And that's the logic. That's the logic of the gospel. Paul says, accept one another. Why? Because you've been accepted. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Accept one another because God has accepted you, but also accept one another because we answer to God alone. That's the second motivation that Paul gives for why we should accept one another instead of quarreling uh, with each other over opinions. Look at verses 5 to 8. He said, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I wonder, did you catch the, the recurring phrase that comes up there, verse 6, 7, 8? He says we are to do it to the Lord, for the Lord, to the Lord. Paul says, live your life to the Lord, for the Lord, because you belong to the Lord. Make your decisions for him. Decide how you live in such a way to please him. He's making the point, isn't he, that we don't have to justify ourselves to one another when it comes to matters of opinion. Uh, Jesus, verse 4, is our master. He's the one that we answer to. And he is our Lord, verse 9, because he alone has authority over life and over death itself. Uh, I used to live in London for uh, a time And one of the things that uh, you you find whenever you live in London is that whenever you're out and about in the city, uh, you see tourists interacting with all the kind of usual things. Uh, And one of the popular favorite ones is where the tourists will interact with the King's Guard, or the Queen's Guard, as they they used to be. Uh, They're the soldiers who wear the bright red uh, uniform and a black hat, looks a bit like a lampshade. And uh, the tourists kind of range on a scale of those who are quite respectful. You know, they get a photo with the kid and it's cute and they don't really cause any bother, to those who are a little bit more difficult and eccentric and find uh, taking pleasure in trying to make the soldiers become less rigid and uh, lose their temper, basically. But in the same way, if you were to go to one of those soldiers and try and get them to do what they're not going to do, the reason they're not going to do it is because they answer to one person, one person alone, and that is the king. They do not answer to you, they answer to the king alone. 
And the point that Paul is making here is that when it comes to matters of opinion, we answer to one person, one person alone, and that person is the Lord. In verses 9 to 12, Paul says that in essence, every knee will bow to Jesus, who is Lord. Jesus is the one who's going to judge us, and he shares that throne with no one. Verse 12 sums up his point. He says, so then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. On cultural matters of indifference, God is the judge. He is the only person whose opinion matters. And in some ways, that's quite liberating, isn't it? We don't have to justify uh, our our background, our our cultural choices to other people. But it's also quite sobering, isn't it? Because it's saying that we must think and we must take ownership of our lives and of our decisions. Uh, The word of God must shape and influence every decision that we make, every aspect of our lives. Why? Because eventually we will give an account of ourselves to God our master. And so we need to ask the question, why do we live as we do? Why do we make the decisions that we do? Why do we spend our time the way we do? Why do we spend our money the way we do? It's not good enough to say, well, it's just how everyone else does it. I'm just part of the herd. No, Paul says, think for yourself. Everyone must be convinced in their own mind because ultimately we answer to God alone. So Paul says, accept one another because God has accepted you and because we answer to God alone. Uh, He moves on then, verse 13 through to chapter uh, 15, verse 4. Uh, And if you're taking headings, this is the second heading. Uh, It's this, let love guide how you use your liberty. Let love guide how you use your liberty. Uh, When it comes to this dispute that's going on in this church in Rome, Uh, We need to be really clear, this is not the kind of argument where nobody is right. Uh, Somebody is right and somebody is wrong. In fact, Paul explicitly identifies with the strong in verse 14. He believes, verse 14, that the strong are right. He says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, uh, it's unclean. Uh, He believes the strong are correct and that the weak are wrong. And so he says with apostolic authority, the truth is, you are free. You are free to eat, and you are free not to eat. But interestingly, the majority of the instructions are not to the weak. He doesn't correct the weak. Actually, all the instructions are to the strong. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul addresses the people who are theologically correct because he wants to make the point that actually it's possible to be theologically correct and yet relationally ugly. Think of an example of this in in real life. Let's go back to the friend who struggles uh, with an alcohol addiction and you have that person over for uh, lunch or dinner or whatever it is and you as the host are aware that you are free. You are free, and so if you want to have a glass of wine, you can, even though you know it will make life difficult for that friend. In that scenario, the host who goes ahead and asserts their freedom is creating a relationally ugly scene. They may be correct, and yet is it the loving thing to do? The point that Paul wants to make in this little section 
is that our freedom must be guided by love. Because freedom that's not guided by love is a very ugly thing. Uh, Look at what it leads to. Uh, Verse 13, uh, it leads to stumbling. Verse 15, it leads to distress. Verse 20, even more serious, it can lead to destruction. And verse 21, it can lead to fellow Christians falling and stumbling. For Paul, love is more important than liberty. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. If I exercise my freedom in such a way that it causes you to stumble, then I need to withhold my freedom. Verse 20, Paul says, It is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. And so we are to make sure that we don't put obstacles in the way of our brothers and sisters in Christ or destroy their faith by insensitively exercising our rights. It's not good enough for us to say, well, look, it's not my problem. It's their problem. They're just a bit rigid. They're a bit uptight. I'm free to do it, and so I'll just go ahead and do it. No, they're family. And therefore, their sensitivities should affect us. Think of the impact of your behavior on other believers. That's what Paul's saying. The danger is that egged on by your example and pressured into conformity, they might end up doing something that in their conscience they feel like they shouldn't do. And as a result, verse 23, they will sin. Look at what he says. He says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Uh, That is a very curious verse. Whenever I first read this passage, I just highlighted it because I thought I don't have a a notion of what that actually is referring to. But I heard someone use an explanation of it. I think it's very good, so I'll share it with you. They said, imagine a scenario where uh, a father tells his daughter to be home at 10 p.m. And the daughter uh, resolves defiantly uh, to disobey their father. And so she comes back Uh, at 11 p.m. She thinks, I'm going to come back at 11 p.m. That'll show my father. He can't tell me when I need to come home and I'm going to teach him a lesson. And yet the night before, the daughter forgets to put her watch back an hour uh, as the clocks had changed. And so after her big night out with her friends, she strides into the house defiantly and yet she does it accidentally when her father told her to do it. She arrives at 10, thinking it's 11 and nothing uh, bad happens to her. Now the question is, has that daughter in that scenario dishonored her father well the answer is yes hasn't she because in her heart she had no desire whatsoever to obey her father she hasn't loved her father she hasn't trusted him and the goodness of his instruction in fact in her heart she's completely ignored what he said even if her actions happen to accidentally line up with them and i think that's the principle of what paul's getting at in verse 23 Uh, he's saying that if we do something that in our conscience we feel like we shouldn't do, that actually for us that becomes sin. Uh, It might be a perfectly uh, fine thing to do in and of itself, but if we're doing it while our hearts within us is saying that we shouldn't be, then actually uh, it's rebellious against God. Uh, The conscience is not infallible. Uh, It needs to be informed by the word of God, but the conscience is sacrosanct. Uh, We need to pay attention to our consciences. We need to respect our consciences. Uh, R.C. Sproul has written this. I think it's very helpful. He says, The conscience is a delicate instrument 
that must be respected. One who seeks to influence the conscience of another carries a heavy responsibility to maintain the integrity of the other person's own personality as crafted by God. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't have a view. Uh, We can have a view. We can have a strong opinion. All that he's saying is that we must use our liberty in such a way that it builds up other believers and it's guided by love. Uh, Nobody understood freedom in the gospel better than Paul, and yet nobody was more willing than Paul to lay aside his freedom in the interests and for the good of uh, a dear brother and sister. And so Paul says, if the issue is a matter of opinion, then love must guide our liberty. As we finish then, uh, lastly, if you're taking uh, notes, uh, Paul says that we need to be united in praise and overflowing with hope. Paul's given a lot of instructions here. There's a lot to take in. There's a lot of uh, intricacies and complexities as to how we do this. How do we accept one another? Uh, How do we let love guide liberty? We have to work that out ourselves. And yet what Paul wants to do is he wants to show us how the church fits into the overall story of redemption. He wants to show us what God's great purpose and plan for his church is, for our church. Uh, One of the reasons I think we get church life so wrong is that we become disconnected from this overall story of what God wants to do in us and through us, of what God is doing in the world in his church. And Romans 15, the first uh, 13 verses, it paints this beautiful vision of what the church is supposed to be. You'll notice verse uh, 5 and verse 17 of chapter 15 that Paul begins to pray. He's given all these commands, all this instruction, and what he does is he starts praying because he knows this is something that God has to do. When Paul starts praying, you know things are getting serious. Here he is writing a letter, and suddenly, like that, he begins to passionately pray for these people who he loves. And these two prayers, they give us an insight into God's heart for the church and into what it should be about, what we should be about. And we're to be united in praise, overflowing with hope. Look at the first prayer, uh, verse 5. Paul says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays and he asks that the church would love each other like Christ has loved us. And why does he pray that prayer? So that with one mind... And with one voice, we would together glorify God. We get this vision of a people who are united in praise. A people who with one voice proclaim to a watching world that our God is glorious. That is what the church is supposed to be. We're not all speaking in the same way, but we're all speaking with one voice. From every tribe and every tongue and every nation, from every background from every class, from every place, with every opinion, united with one voice to declare the truth of God's praise. I don't know about you, but that is a vision I think to get excited about. We're to be united in praise, but also verse 17, we're to be overflowing uh, with hope. Or sorry, verse 13. Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, As you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul prays that the church would be filled with joy and peace so that they would overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is to be united in praise and overflowing with hope because that's God's heart for his church. That's his plan. That is who we are to be and that is who the world needs us to be. Uh, This is not a a man-made initiative. It's not a human-generated thing. No, according to Paul, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what a church looks like uh, that is full of the Holy Spirit, it is a church that is overflowing with hope. A church that is overflowing with hope, it has no room for other things. It's a bit like a cup of water that's overflowing with water. A church that's overflowing with hope, it has no room for quarreling or cynicism or divisions based on opinions. Paul says we are to be united in praise, overflowing with hope, because that is God's purpose and his plan as we accept one another, as God has accepted us, and as we live for him and for him alone. I was trying to think, uh, as we finish, of an illustration where this has been seen, where this has been done. And I think a good illustration of this is the story of Eric Liddell. You're probably familiar with it. If you're not, uh, there's a, a film, Chariots of Fire, made about him. But in the 1924 Olympics, uh, Liddell, because of his love for the Lord Jesus, of his willingness to, to, to live for Jesus, he refused to run in the 100 meter uh, race. Why did he refuse? Because it was held on a Sunday. And for him, in his conscience, he felt like he could not honor the Lord and run. So instead, he ran in the 400 meter race, which wasn't his natural distance, and yet gloriously, uh, he won uh, the, the gold. It's a brilliant story. It's a brilliant film, if you haven't seen it. But here's the thing, many people in this room might draw the line a bit differently from Eric Liddell. You might say, well, I don't see any problem with playing sport on a Sunday. I went to church in the morning, I play in the afternoon. We might draw the line slightly different to uh, Eric Liddell. And yet, I'm sure we can all agree uh, that he was doing it to the Lord. He was doing it out of a deep love for Jesus. And the most beautiful thing about the story of Eric Liddell is how the church kind of gathered around him. I'm sure there were lots of people who maybe didn't agree with his decision, and yet they were united in praise, united with one voice declaring the same gospel that Eric Liddell uh, declared. We might draw the line differently, and yet whatever we do, we're to do it to the Lord. The truth is, in church life, all of us are shaped by different uh, factors, uh, backgrounds, upbringings. It'll shape how we hold different opinions. Uh, You might tonight over tea and coffee express opinions that are very different from the person you're chatting to. But in that realm, in the realm of opinions, Paul says we are to accept one another. We're to welcome each other into our hearts. Because the truth is that diversity, when it comes to matters of opinion, enriches our church family and makes our family a beautiful thing for a watching world to see. Let's pray that God would do that in us. Uh, Heavenly Father, these are difficult verses. These are uh, challenging commands to accept one another. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you have accepted us in the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you have made room for us. You have brought us into your heart, into uh, into your life. Lord, we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to accept one another. 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us to know why we make the decisions we make, to live our lives for your glory and to you. Lord, we pray that as we live with each other, with all of our differences, that you would cause love to guide how we use our liberty. And Lord, we pray that as a church, uh, we would be connected to your plans and purposes for us, that we would be united in praise with one voice declaring the truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to overflow with hope so that many will see uh, Jesus and come to know him. We pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen.